Amen. Well, <clears throat> this morning as we wrap up our series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're obviously looking at anxiety. And Matthew says in the verses there, don't worry about what you'll eat, don't worry about what you'll wear, don't worry about what you'll drink. And anxiety takes several different forms, all right? So I'm going to be very clear up front. I'm not talking today <laughs> about clinically diagnosed anxiety. I'm not in a position, I'm not in an authority to speak on that, so that's not what we're talking about today. I want to make sure that we're clear. So are we talking about clinically diagnosable anxiety? No. no. Thank you, four of you that are saying no. Um, it's cool. Uh, talking about anxiety as it, as it equates to worry. Anxiety and worry go hand in hand, all right? And anxiety is defined several different ways. I was told by a good friend of mine last night, well, it's fine that you're preaching on anxiety. Like, you don't have anything to be anxious about. I said, have you been listening to my life for the past 12 months? <laughs> well, I thought you were defining it like the young people. I'm not young. <laughs> anxiety takes several different forms, but it can also take several different time spans, right? Some anxiety is kind of momentary. It's fleeing. And then others goes on for what seems like a lifetime. And guys, I'm a worrier. It's who I am. <laughs> it's how I'm built. And I remember, I have a memory, a distinct memory for some odd reason of being in junior high. And my uh, friend's dad was a teacher and he was driving us home from school that day and they had a two-door car. And I've always been a bigger guy and so I was in the back seat and I literally had a 10-minute car ride from hell because I'm in the back seat with anxiety thinking, am I too fat to get out of the back of the car? <laughs> Like, am I going to be stuck in this back seat forever? Like, is this for Taurus my coffin? Literally thinking that. Praise Jesus, I got out of the back seat. Praise him from whom all blessings flow, right? And sometimes our anxieties can be, they can have humor to them when we look back on them. But at the, at the time, like, they're real and they're present. And this summer, another example of me being a worrier and, and having anxiety uh, I was honored this summer to serve as one of the chaplains for the WNBA uh, Vegas Aces team here in Vegas. And so Labor Day weekend, I was leading the chapel. And so what was on on Saturday? College football. And so I'm all wrapped up in a game watching, and I look up, and I'm like, oh, gosh, I have got to go. Like, <laughs> I have got to shower. I have got to go. <laughs> and so I'm flying down 95, and by flying, I was probably going like 67 in a 65, dog. Don't worry. Something like that. So I'm flying down 95, and as I'm flying down 95, I realize I didn't put on deodorant. And it's like the first weekend of September. It's still hot. And I'm thinking, like, I can't go into this chapel room with these pro athletes and have stinky armpits. Like, I have got to find deodorant. <laughs> and I had a friend that was in town from out of town that was staying there. Dude, meet me here. I'll give you 20 bucks. Whatever deodorant you've got is mine, and the 20 bucks is yours. And so I peeled off on MLK, peeled off meaning I gently went to the right on the exit ramp, right? So I'm driving on MLK, and I, I mean, it's September, I'm in a panic, I'm like sweating, my armpits really stink now, and there are no gas stations or drug stores on MLK. So if you do that, you're going to put about 10 more minutes into your drive. So I have to turn around, come back, and so I wound up finding a terrible herbs and paid like $7.50 for a deodorant that's this big. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> But my armpits didn't smell bad. And so I get to Mandalay Bay where they played, and I literally am sprinting through the parking garage. I'm sprinting through the casino. 
and I got there with like 10 minutes. I'm like, praise you, Jesus. Now, looking back, like, that's a funny story to tell, but at the time, like, I was panicked as all get out. Like, I cannot go into this room. <laughs> I cannot be late for chapel. So take a moment in your listening guide, up at the top, you've got a question at the top. What makes you anxious in your current season of life? And that, that, that can be a personal thing. And if you're worried that you've got some nosy people around you, maybe just write something really quickly so that you know what it means maybe nobody else does. Maybe draw a picture. Is it a relationship? Is it your job? Is it finances? Is it God? Is it church? Maybe like Matthew just warned us about, is it what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink tomorrow or today? Just because I feel like this probably should be mentioned, maybe your anxiety, as with a lot of Christians the past couple of days, is because Kanye West has dropped a Christian CD, right? Maybe that's anxiety for you. Sidebar, the Bible's clear that when someone comes to salvation in Christ, the angels in heaven rejoice. And daughters of that king, if our reaction is anything short of that, shame on us. Kanye West or anyone, praise him. Next week I do expect some Kanye songs though, Ben. <laughs> this, use this gospel, something like that, I'm cool. So what's causing you anxiety in your current season of life? We're going to spend some time today in, in 1 Kings 19. But before we dive into 1 Kings 19, we're going to talk about a guy named Elijah. And it's important that we know what happens in 1 Kings 18 to fully understand what's going on in 1 Kings 19. All right? So in 1 Kings 18, we see that Elijah, he's at war with 850 soldiers of a king named Ahab. Basically, Ahab is king, and his wife Jezebel was queen. That name might ring a bell with some. Not exactly the most upstanding people in the Bible. But they encourage the people to worship a god named Baal. And Elijah's saying, no, that, that's not God. And the land was going through a terrible drought, and Elijah said, the reason why there's a drought in this land is because you as king have told your people to worship a god that's not even true. And so as part of their battle, the 850 soldiers from Ahab, the Baal worshipers, they bring in a cow and they put it on, on a, a stack of wood and they prayed and prayed and prayed for Baal to send down fire to prove that he was the true God. Did that happen? No. And Elijah gets a little cocky during this, right? He's egging them on like, pray again. Where's your God now? A little smack talker in the Old Testament, all right? So then next, Elijah brings in his cow and puts it on the wood. And he prays to God, prays that God would send fire. Did God send fire? Yes. Is our God, the same God that Elijah worshiped, still true today? Yes. Did the drought end in the land? After that calf caught fire? Yes. So Elijah has this huge miracle that happens. 
This, uh, he has a revival service. God, you're true. God, you showed up. God, I asked you to do what you needed to do, what I needed you to do, and you did it all. Praise your name. But then what happens? He's told to kill the 150 soldiers of Ahab and Jezebel. Well, that didn't make them too happy. <laughs> so what happens? Jezebel says, that guy Elijah, he's done. Kill him. And so this brings us into 1 Kings 19. And we're going to start in verse 3, verses 3 through 5. And so immediately after Elijah is told that Ahab and Jezebel want to kill him, this is where we pick up in verse 3. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life for I'm no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under a broom tree. It's estimated that approximately 31 million Americans suffer from some form of depression or anxiety or a combination of both. As we look at that, don't we see our reaction sometimes to life being the same as Elijah's? I, I, I can't stand here and say that I've been suicidal before. But I can stand here and say multiple times, I've said, Lord, if you want to take me now, I'm good. I will wear this. I don't even need to shower. I'm not hungry. Like, let's go. Get me out of this mess. You've probably said that a time or two yourself, right? That's where we find Elijah. He simply wants to die. Remember, what happened the very day before Elijah takes off running and says to the Lord, take me now, kill me, I'm no good. What happened the day before? The very day before. We just talked about it. Elijah called out to God. God showed up in a way that only God could show up. There's a revival service and miracle. And the next day he's saying, God, I'm no good, just kill me. A day later. The memory of the victory that Elijah had on a Tuesday is gone because he faces some trouble on Wednesday. And aren't we the same way? <laughs> aren't we wired the same exact way? See, Elijah has this huge miracle in his life. But then the next day he's saying to the Lord, like, when are you going to show up here? These people want to kill me. Do you hear me, God? Do you plan on doing anything? The day before, God showed up in a way that only God up and proved himself to be true. In your listening guide, you'll find we quickly forget what God did yesterday due to what concerns us today. If you're an ameniner, you can say it there. We'll try it one more time. We quickly forget what God did yesterday due to what concerns us today. I heard someone say recently, 
much more eloquently than I'm capable of saying, but they said that Christianity is a religion of remembrance. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. Don't forget what God did yesterday just because something different concerns you today. He's the same God. He has the same plan. Nothing's thrown him off his throne. And guys, they say that the best sermons preached are the ones, and I'm not saying this is the best sermon that you'll ever hear or the greatest sermon ever, nothing like that. But they say that the best sermons are the ones that you've lived. Guys, I've lived this sermon time and time again. I'm living it now. All it takes is one piece of mail, one email, one phone call, one person running a red light. A couple years ago, being at a music festival in Las Vegas, and life has changed. And that's difficult. Let me walk you through uh, some events in the lives of my parents a couple years ago. In June, my mom's sister died. In August, my dad's brother died. In September, their good friend and neighbor died. In November, my cousin died, and that was the son of my aunt that died in June. In February, a friend of my dad's died. My dad had his knee replaced. And then a few weeks after that, they had to put their dog down. Guys, that's a lot of heartache. It's a lot of pain. My dad and I talk a lot on the phone. And during this time, my dad kept saying to me the same thing. Ryan, I just don't get it. When is God going to show up? When is God going to hear me crying out to him? He's not doing anything. And guys, I wasn't sure how to respond to that. I mean, he's my dad. And he's broken beyond broken. And as I prayed about it, finally I had a chance, and I, the Lord guided me to what to say. And I just looked at him and said, I didn't look at him, we were on the phone. I said, Dan, I think a lot of times God shows up, but it just doesn't look like we expected it to look. I think he's heard you. I think he's acting on your behalf. We see this throughout the Bible. He hears your cares. He's certainly showing up. It just doesn't look like we expected it to. And doesn't that go back to the beginnings of the birth of Jesus? Israel wanted what? They wanted a king. What did they get? Some baby born in a barn. Not what they expected. But God showed up. Let me give you this. The best predictor of what God is going to do in our lives is to remember what he's already done. The best predictor of what God is going to do in our lives is to remember what he's already done. I mentioned a minute ago, someone more eloquently than I said that Christianity is a religion of remembrance. When I'm talking to people going through a rough time, I say, hey, has God let you down yet? Every situation in your life that seemed beyond, God's redeemed it. God's restored it. Has he not? 
every story, every life in the Bible that seemed beyond redemption, beyond saving, God showed up and saved it. He redeemed it, did he not? Guys, that's been God's character and nature the whole time. He doesn't have a plan that changes today. The best predictor of what God's going to do in your life is to remember what he's already done. And guys, like I said, like I, uh, I've lived the sermon several times. Um, a couple years ago, I did something similar to this at a church way out on the east side. And I told Polly before service, I love this sermon and I hate this sermon. Because the enemy fires at me. A couple years ago, I literally took my truck in, sorry, for about $1,200 in repairs. Next week, the lights come on again. I take it in, and they're like, shavings, your engine's going. What? What do I do? you got to get rid of this truck. It's going to die any time. That was on a Friday morning. Friday evening, guys, I love my dog more than I should. I fed my dog something I shouldn't have, and he was, blood was going everywhere. So my truck's dying. I've got to put my dog in a truck that could die any point in time, thinking that my dog is dying, and drive him to the emergency room where he spent three days. And they called and said, we don't think he's going to get any better without going home because he's kind of plateaued. Can you come and get him? Sure, let me drive my truck down there that might die <laughs> to get my dog that's on the verge of death to try to keep him from dying. And then the next week, I got scabies. That's not weird. <laughs> That's not the attack of the enemy. And just this week, I'm waiting on a phone call tomorrow, Tuesday, about my dog because there's a health issue going on. Guys, I spent yesterday and Friday, I cried at the drop of a hat. I've got a couple friends close to me that are going through huge turmoil in their lives right now. But a couple years ago, I moved here in January 14. I lived in Virginia for about five years before that. And when my time in Virginia was coming to an end, guys, I was miserable. The writing was on the wall with my job, that my job was ending. I didn't have that many friends. I was alone. I was lonely. Just across the board, I was miserable. And as I talked to friends and family, like, I don't, I don't know what to do. The wisdom that was given to me multiple times was just quit your job, pack up, and get out of there. Is that a solution? Yeah. But I realized at that time that the Lord had me in a cave. He had me in a pit. Things weren't going well. And then I very easily could say, I'm out, I'm good. I'm quitting this job, I'm packing up my apartment, and I'm going somewhere. I don't know where, but it ain't going to be here. And I had several people saying, just do that. But guys, what I realized is that if I did that, I was going to deny Lord Jesus the opportunity to be Lord of that season of my life. There's something he's trying to show me. There's something he's trying to teach me. There's something he's trying to reveal to me that I'm just not getting. And I've got to walk through this period of my life that sucks, if I'm being honest, to get it. 
Now, if you ask me today, I was just able to share this with a pastor in town last week. Would I go through that experience again, not to save your life? But would I trade the lessons and what I learned about God from that experience, not to save your life? Because I got to know God in a way I didn't know him. I can speak about God in a way I couldn't speak about him before that. Sometimes God has to put you in a cave. Sometimes God has to put you in a pit to refine you, to break you, to show you who he really wants to be in your life. He's got to remove some of the junk. But what are two things that we long for? We long to be in control, and we long to be comfortable. In fact, I think those two things become idols for all of us at different points in time. Comfort and control. You want the good news or the bad news? Because they're the same. God did not call you to be comfortable. God did not call you to be in control. Ever. God's call to the disciples was clear. He two words, follow me. He says the same thing to you. He says the same thing to me. There's never a promise of comfort. And if you're following him, you're not in control. But we desire that, don't we? We desire to be comfortable. Well, no, my, my cube's been here for 10 years. You can't move it. We desire to be in control. We desire to be comfortable. And God doesn't call us to either one. So we jump back into 1 Kings. So Elijah's under a broom tree. That's where we left him. He wants to die. And, and if I'm writing this story, I'm probably going to say to Elijah, get up, you whiny rear end. Like, quit being a baby. Is that God's response to him? No. No. If we jump back into 1 Kings 19 and verse 5, we're going to go all the way down to the first part of verse 8. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Oreb, the mountain of God. So rather than being a jerk like I would be, God sends an angel who what whispers to him and says, hey, here's some food, here's some water, get up and, get up and eat and drink. He offers him a juice box, gives him a snack, and says, have a nap if you want to. And then he wakes Elijah up again after he sleeps for a while and says, there's still some food, there's still some drink. Get up and eat and drink because you're going to need it for what's ahead. We see that Elijah walked for 40 days and 40 nights to get to, the Mount, to Mount Oreb. Is that weird to you? I ain't walking 40 days, 40 nights for nothing. 
much less to get to a mountain. <laughs> because you see, I, I live by Lone Mountain. I'm not walking to Boulder City to get in on top of the last mountain in the area. I, no, I'm good. I, praise the Lord, have a truck that works. <laughs> That's weird, right? Mount Oreb goes by another name, Mount Sinai. So remember that here as we move forward. Mount Oreb is the same as Mount Sinai. So the angel gives him food and water knowing he's going to do this. He's going to walk 40 days, 40 nights, and says, you're going to need some food and water for that journey. In 1 Kings 9, or 19, 9 through 12, we read about Elijah. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Then the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. So again, Elijah walks 40 days, 40 nights to get to a specific mountain, Mount Oreb, also Mount Sinai. Why? My guess is because earlier in the Old Testament, Moses went to a mountain called what? Mount Sinai where what happened, he was given the Ten Commandments on top of that mountain. The Lord showed up on the, top, on the top of Mount Sinai with Moses. And I think in Elijah's heart, he said, Lord, I need to see you. I need to feel you. And there's one place I know that's happened before, and I'm going, I'll walk it. I don't care. So again, soft whisper. Elijah, what are you doing here? You're out of place. Elijah, stand up here. There's going to be a wind. There's going to be an earthquake. And there's going to be a fire. But the Lord wasn't in those things. And then what happens, the end of verse 12, there's another soft voice. Another soft voice. Something we've never seen here in the Bible up to this point. God re-gifts Elijah's call. Elijah says, I'm out. <laughs> I ain't doing this anymore. God, just take me. I'm done. I'm sleeping under this tree. I'm cool. God says, no, Elijah, I've got a plan. And he starts to reveal that in verse 13. Again, that's that soft whisper we heard at the verse, in the verse 12. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? As we read on, God says to Elijah, what are you doing here? And here's my plan moving forward. You're going to anoint Haziel as king? And get Elisha to come help you as you've been doing this by yourself for too long. God lays out his next steps. But he starts it by saying, what are you doing here? 
he's in a cave. 40 days and 40 nights from his home. And all this maybe seems a little disjointed, so let me kind of bring it together here as we wrap up here. You see, Elijah ran to Mount Horeb, he walked, to spend time in a cave. Probably the same cave, at least the same mount, gone to to receive the Ten Commandments. Fast forward 700 years, and what do we see? We see Jesus. And we're told that Jesus goes to the top of a mountain with Peter, James, and John, but we're also told that there are two other people that show up there. But what happens on the top of that mountain? It's called Jesus' transfiguration. So basically, he unzips his humanity, and the glory of God that's been in Jesus the whole time is shining brightly. Peter James, and, or Peter, James, and John were there, but there were two others. And guys, these are, these are the things that don't make sense to me. <laughs> two other people, who were they? Moses, Elijah. Why? <laughs> and all that we're told in the Bible is that they were talking. What were they talking about? Is that, is that weird? That's weird to me. I mean, were they talking about how Ohio State really is the best college football team in the nation, but there's a huge bias towards SEC teams? Because that's, that's what I would probably talk about. <laughs> were they saying, hey, what's for dinner tomorrow? What are we going to wear tomorrow? So what are we going to drink in the morning? I don't think so. And this is pure speculation. But Jesus knew what his near future held. That he was going to be tried, found to be a criminal. He was going to be put on a cross to die for your sins and mine, the sins of the whole world. But unlike Moses and Elijah, where God spared them, God couldn't spare Jesus. So the weight of all of our sin went upon him. The Bible tells us when he was crucified, there was an earthquake. There was blackness over the earth. Similarities? Jesus knew they would take his body off that cross and put it in a what? A tomb? Which was really a cave. So my guess is that Moses looked at Jesus and said, hey man, I spent some time in a cave myself and everything worked out all right. And I think Elijah chimed in and said, you know what? I walked 40 days to get into a cave on Mount Oreb, and I needed the Lord to show up, and he did. My guess is the words of those two men gave Jesus the courage to face what he was about to face. Praise God. You see, Jesus was brought out of the cave. He was resurrected. And it's because of his resurrection that our resurrection is possible. It's because God didn't shield him on the cross, but God put everything on him on the cross that we can live in union with God today. A 
I love this story because I think it's a beautiful thread throughout the Bible. But I don't think that the story ends here. Because you and I in different points in time find ourselves in caves. We find ourselves in situations saying, Lord, you have got to show up because there's no other way out. Lord, I need you now like I've never needed you before. It's because Moses spent some time in a cave and it worked out all right. Elijah spent some time in a cave and it worked out all right. Because those two men spoke courage to our Savior Jesus and he spent time in a cave, everything's changed. Amen. So my challenge to you, whatever cave you might find yourself in today, if you're not in one, it's coming. <laughs> you may have just climbed out of one. Praise him for that. But whatever cave you're in today, don't rush out of it. Don't quit because it's easy. Don't quit because you're not in control. Don't quit because you're uncomfortable. He hasn't called you to those things anyway. He's called you to be like his son, Jesus, and to follow him. And if it takes putting you in a cave, putting me in a cave for a while, so be it. But may God find us being faithful and seeking him. May God find us being faithful and being refined to be more like him while we're in that cave so that when we come out, we can proclaim his goodness like we've maybe never proclaimed it before. Amen. So as we wrap up, I'm going to have the band go ahead and come up forward. I want you to take this time as we sing here at the end of the service. And whatever you wrote or drew or whatever you referred to at the top, your answer might still be the same, but you might realize, hey, there's something bigger going on here. I'm in a cave. Whatever it is, I invite you to spend time, if, if it's staying at your seat, and just taking that to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm in a cave. I've, I've got to trust you to work. I've got to trust you to show up because I don't know how to get out of this. It might be that you want to stand and raise your hands because you just came out of a cave. It might be that you want to come to the altar and just pray by yourself and dedicate your cave to the Lord. But I pray that we stand on the promise today that God does some of his best work in caves. <laughs>